couple of years ago, we had on the show HKS Professor Joseph Nye, a man well-known for helping to define the concept of power in the context of international relations. At one point, he spoke about the long-standing tendency of Americans to worry about an imminent decline in U.S. power, whether it be Sputnik in the 1950s, Japanese manufacturing in the 1980s, or China today. And while the persistent fears have yet to bear out, Nye suggested that perhaps the anxiety about the decline, quote, helps us to keep on our toes. The recent news about China's faltering economy has at least temporarily put on hold some of the more imminent prognostications of doom, but questions remain about how the U.S. will fare as the world continues to change. What can the U.S. do to retain its global leadership in economic, cultural, and military affairs? And can it rise above an oftentimes antagonistic political discourse to meet new challenges? Are we still on our toes? Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and if you haven't taken a moment yet to subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes or your preferred podcast app, what better time than now? You can also find us every week in Boston Globe Opinion and on Twitter at PolicyCast. This week, we're joined by former CIA director and retired U.S. Army four-star general David Petraeus. He currently chairs the KKR Global Institute and is a non-resident senior fellow at the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs here at HKS. General Petraeus, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Matt. Thanks. So Americans seem to love to talk about how we are in decline. Uh, You've recently turned your attention towards the United States and are bullish about American prospects going forward. Specifically, you've been writing recently about how North America can become the next great emerging market. What sparked your interest in this research in the first place? Well, when I was the director of the CIA and we were asked on a frequent basis what the price of Brent crude oil would be after the next round of sanctions on Iran, and the agency actually has among the best energy economists in in all of government, Uh, As we were working that issue, we realized that aggregate supply, global aggregate supply, was going up quite substantially, and it was because of what was what we now know as the U.S. energy revolution, but it was the early years of the so-called shale gale, that we had achieved a breakthrough that allowed us to extract oil and gas from shale deposits deep below the surface of the earth uh, using technology we invented. directional drilling, Mm -hmm. hydraulic fracturing of the shale, and then seismic big data uh, technology that enabled us to accurately drill in the shale seam. This ultimately added over 3 million barrels per day to U.S. production, which at its peak just recently uh, was at 9.6 million barrels per day. So you have a sense of how rapidly that happened. By the way, that was 3 million barrels in three years. Mm -hmm. And it has completely revolutionized uh, energy markets. The reason we have such low prices at the gas pump is because of the U.S. energy revolution and the interaction that it has had and the way it has changed energy markets so substantially, despite sanctions taking a million barrels per day out of uh, Iranian exports and despite violence in Libya that has taken another anywhere from 500,000 to 800,000 per day off that uh, country's exports as well. Beyond that, as we looked at some other phenomena, we started looking at 
so-called additive manufacturing, three-dimensional printing. We bought some 3D printers at the agency to fool around with them, see what they might enable us to do in tradecraft or whatever. Printing out Legos, I'm sure. Oh, well, we, absolutely. <laughs> it, was, it was just Legos, that's all. <laughs> and little necklaces and things. Mm -hmm. um, and then got more and more into a recognition of what was coming down the pike in the so-called uh, manufacturing revolution, advanced manufacturing, robotics, uh, and automation and so forth. Uh, we realized that the key enabler for this and actually for the energy revolution was the IT revolution. In other words, the movement to cloud computing with the additional speed and scalable storage that that provides, which enables the kinds of massive programs uh, that are needed for advanced manufacturing and also, by the way, for big data seismic uh, technology to help us in the energy extraction. And then we looked at the life sciences revolution, st still in the early stages, but now starting to gather steam. Keep in mm -hmm. mind, this was all a good four years, three and a half years ago. Mm -hmm. When I left the agency, uh, I was contacted by Professor Allison, Dean of the Belfer Center, and Graham asked if I'd consider being a non-resident senior fellow. Uh, I said I'd be delighted to do so, but it would be terrific if I could get a few research assistants uh, at Harvard who could help me put together a course that I was thinking about teaching at the Honors College of the City University of New York, knowing that I was going to uh, ultimately become the, probably join KKR, Global Investment Firm, mm -hmm. which I now am a, a partner of, in addition to be chairing their uh, Global Institute. And uh, he gave me these three phenomenal uh, graduate students, and even in one case post-graduate uh, student, uh, we call them the Three Amigos, and over the course of the ensuing five or six months, uh, the Three Amigos and I put together a course that I actually teach at the Honors College of the City University of New York titled The Coming North American Decades. I'm tempted now to actually to take coming out of it. In fact, mm -hmm. the first semester, it was a question, are we on the threshold of the North American decades, question mark. Mm -hmm. I took that off because it was very clear to me uh, as it evolved that we were going to enter the North American decades. What I mean by this is best illustrated, I think, by uh, my response to a question that I had at a conference in London about two years ago, where I was asked, after the American century, what? And mm -hmm. I think they expected me to say the Asian century or perhaps even the Chinese century. Instead, my response was, after the American century, the North American decades. And that's an S on the end. How? however many decades uh, it is, will be determined by a number of different factors, some of which we need to work on ourselves, which are so-called policy and legislative headwinds. It, it's interesting that you say the North American uh, decades as opposed to perhaps the United States decades. Um, most people, when they talk about what the, you know, the next global hegemon is going to be, um, they think of one country. They think it's going to be the United States or China. Uh, what made you start to think of the three countries, the United States, Canada, and Mexico, as a single cohesive group? Well, largely it's the North American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, NAFTA, now 21 years in implementation, has led to very high integration of the three economies. That's best illustrated by the fact that the number one trading partner of the United States is not the number two economy in the world, or the number three, or the number four, or number five even. Uh, it's a very modest-sized country to our north, Canada. 
Mm -hmm. uh, but because of the enormous integration of our economies, uh, we have that relationship. And then pulling into the second place position uh, in one category, third in the other, China's second in that category, uh, Mexico is uh, also increasingly integrated and enjoying its own manufacturing boom centered on uh, Monterey, which I've visited and is a manufacturing colossus that has to be seen to be believed. Uh, one of the major car production centers in the entire world now. I think it's number four or so in exports and, and climbing. So you put the three countries together, uh, again, relatively unfettered free trade. It's not to say there aren't obstacles, there aren't borders, there aren't delays at those borders, and mm -hmm. there aren't a host of different issues that could, if resolved, help integrate even more. But if you put the three together, you, you ultimately will get to about 500 million people. That's a very sizable market. Certainly, again, the U.S. is the core of this. It's the U.S. revolutions in many respects powering a lot of this. But it's the integration of our economies. It's the shared beliefs in uh, democracy, uh, free market capitalism, uh, and the lack of any kinds of historic, ethnic, or sectarian, or even geographic rivalries that spark conflict mm -hmm. the way you have in virtually every other part of the world. You don't see Mexico, for example, asking China to pivot to North America to help Mexico balance against North against the United States. Not since uh, the Zimmerman telegram. That's, I mean, again, there, there have been some issues in the past, sure. to be sure, but we've generally uh, forgotten that we fought wars with each of the countries. And now Canada is a NATO ally, and, and again, Mexico is a a uh, better and better partner mm -hmm. as well, frankly. Now, when you say the next uh, few decades, is that because you just don't feel comfortable thinking beyond the next few decades? Or is it also a great deal of the trade that happens between Mexico, the United States, Canada, and the United States uh, is energy-related, oil and natural gas? Um, is It's is, also auto-related. It's mm -hmm. a huge. I think it's a car produced in Mexico is 40% U.S. content. Mm-hmm. Uh, major industry in Canada is actually car parts that we use again in our auto industry. Sure. So again, you look at a variety of different industries and they're very, very highly integrated and, and increasingly so. Mm -hmm. The fact is, as an example, Mexican labor, when you factor in productivity and transportation costs to the U.S., the biggest market in the world, uh, and so forth, uh, it's more competitive than, than in China. Uh, in fact, one feature of this, again, North American decades has to do with some question about whither China. Uh, it is obviously slowing down now. When I first taught the course uh, some over two years ago, uh, people were all saying that China was going to eclipse the United States by at least 2020, if not sooner. Mm -hmm. We now have a situation where this year it, it appears clear that the United States will grow more in real absolute dollar denominated GDP than does China. Mm -hmm. So the inevitability of the crossing of the of these two lines, China's going much more rapidly upward than ours until now, uh, is doesn't look so inevitable. So again, rumors of the American demise or demise of our um, great power status uh, I think have been greatly exaggerated, and now we are proving uh, differently. 
So how do these four technological revolutions fit into this, uh, you know, these these next few decades? How does it make sure that the United States remains as a world power, but maybe more than that, the people in the United States uh, at all economic levels um, see the benefits of it? Well, first of all, the U.S. is either leading or among the leaders of every one of these revolutions. Uh, again, at some point, we're already the largest natural gas producer in the world as a result of the energy revolution. We likely will be the largest crude oil producer in the world at some point uh, as well. We're already the largest oil liquids, which is a larger category, includes some other uh, items than just pure crude oil. Mm-hmm. Uh, manufacturing revolution, again, is truly going to transform how things are made. Mm-hmm. And again, we have to be ready for this. We have to transform our education system accordingly. Uh, The IT revolution is enabling all kinds of advances. And of course, I haven't really gotten into the associated startups and so forth. They're all dependent on the IT revolution. Again, the US is is far and away uh, the leader or certainly uh, among the leaders in virtually every niche within that particular revolution. And life sciences, once again, our great research universities, our national institutes of health and all the rest, uh, very much in the forefront of, of almost any one of the different areas that comprise that particular revolution. The key is we have to stay there, uh, and that's going to require continued investment. You can't cut your research funding and expect that you're going to stay uh, leading the pack. And so this gets into the issue of what we we are sometimes I'm asked, what is it that we need to do to enable us to capitalize fully on these four revolutions and really some other very fundamental issues? Uh, you know, our macroeconomic fundamentals are reasonable, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer is that we have to turn legislative and policy headwinds into tailwinds. We need, for example, comprehensive immigration reform. Uh, we actually subsidize the education of, of foreign citizens in our great universities. They all want to study in the United States, right here at Harvard uh, in particular, especially if they can't get into Princeton. And uh, they then... I'm, I'm they, sorry. Hold yes. on. Wait, wait, wait. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> Got to have brand loyalty there. But let me continue, uh, please. So... Uh, actually, you know, if you can't be a senior fellow at Harvard, that is. Um, but so, again... We've got to get uh, the, the smart people need to be able to stay. You know, we, we educate them, and then because they can't get a, an H-1B visa, uh, half of those who apply for an H-1B visa uh, are, are out of luck. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we lose hugely talented people as a result. By the way, right. Canada is happy to take them. They literally have billboards outside the airports that say, come on, come all. <laughs> can't get a U.S. visa? Come to us. Um, And then there's also got to be a pathway for unskilled labor. Uh, You know, crops actually rotted in the fields in the past two years in a couple of states because uh, we didn't have a legal pathway for unskilled uh, workers to come into the United States for the traditional agricultural harvesting season. Mm -hmm. There's a host of others. Again, I've talked about education reform, the need to ensure that beyond that, that our debt to GDP ratio continues to come down instead of starts up. Uh, there's a need, desperate need for investment in infrastructure in the United States, roads, bridges, ports, airports, uh, that can improve productivity. All of these are issues that have to be resolved. Cybersecurity legislation, you can just keep going with the list. But the challenges in Washington, the partisanship, uh, the inability to compromise 
uh, on Capitol Hill and then between Capitol Hill and the White House has prevented uh, resolving some of these issues and turning headwinds into tailwinds that could propel us even faster uh, on the road to our GDP growth. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, listeners can certainly uh, read more about this in uh, the report that you put out out of the Belfer Center, the next great emerging market, question mark, uh, capitalizing on North America's four interlocking revolutions. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. I would be remiss to have you in the in the seat here and not talk a little bit about what is happening in the Middle East right now. Last year, you wrote about how the U.S. ought to plan for the day after the Iran deal. It's it's the day after. It's a few months after. Do you think that we've adequately planned for the aftermath of the deal? Well, I think we've done more than we'd done at the time that, that I wrote that with my colleague at KKR Vance Surchuk. In fact, more recently, uh, I did a piece with uh, former Ambassador Dennis Ross, former senior advisor to the president on Uh, these very issues. Mm -hmm. And in that, we argued that now is the time for there to be an ironclad U.S. national commitment that Iran will never be allowed to enrich uranium to weapons grade. We think this is crucially important in terms of reassuring our allies and our partners in the region uh, who are, who in some cases have real, in some cases perhaps misperceptions uh, about the deal and about our Uh, commitment to stability in that region. Uh, In countries that see Iranian adventurism in Syria, in in Yemen, in uh, Iraq, uh, in other other areas, and are concerned uh, that this deal will result in Iran getting 100 to 150 billion dollars of assets unfrozen very quickly. Uh, will be able to put a million barrels of oil back on the market, and then presumably more after that will be reintegrated into the global economy. Uh, and we'll have, frankly, a lot more money, uh, not just for their people and infrastructure and worthy programs, but for the Revolutionary Guards Corps Quds Force and its mischief in the region and around the world. And some of that very deadly uh, adventurism and in, indeed support of terrorism. It's important to remember that Iran is one of three countries left that we have designated as a state sponsor of terror, uh, in this case, Lebanese Hezbollah, uh, and also uh, the Quds Force and Hamas. So that's a big concern. And that reassurance, that step, I think is very, very important. We've edged up to it, but I think ironclad requires a bit more. Beyond that, uh, the more fulsome articulation of a very comprehensive policy again, to reassure the countries in the region, uh, our partners and allies, that we are going to continue to take steps to interdict Iranian provision of arms, say, to Lebanese Hezbollah or Hamas or the Houthis or whatever, uh, that we will take further steps to integrate the ballistic missile defenses uh, in the region, the early warning systems in the region to provide accelerated uh, delivery of items requested uh, from the United States in terms of security assistance, uh, pursue further diplomatic initiatives, and indeed see what economic uh, initiatives and indeed financial uh, actions uh, can be taken to provide that very, very important reassurance uh, so that countries in the region don't feel compelled 
to, for example, have to go get their own nuclear program mm -hmm. uh, so that when the deal is done 15 years from now, that they need to be in a similar position to Iran. Uh, so th this is very, very important. And as I said, there have certainly been steps taken, initiatives launched. Uh, I think taking these additional actions would be very important. Syria has somewhat sucked the air out of the region in that everything seems to have some kind of impact on what's going on in the civil war there, um, whether it be ISIS, uh, Iran supporting Assad, Turkey and the Kurds. Iran has now indicated a willingness to work with the U.S. on Syria after the deal had been announced. Given this convoluted web of allegiances surrounding the conflict, is there any reason to believe that there can be cooperation? Well, I would certainly be a bit skeptical about it. I'm from the, the show-me state, I think, when it comes to that. But if Iran were to change its behavior and become a constructive, contributing member of society, if you will, in the region and the world, then by all means we should be willing to take those steps, noting I think the, the likelihood of that uh, is very, 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 very slim indeed. It, Syria is a geopolitical Chernobyl that is spewing violence, instability, and extremism, not just in the region, but really now th throughout the world. I certainly focused on the region but with this spillover in Europe, even to a degree the United States, and certainly out uh, in Asia, the Asia-Pacific region where I was last week. The fact is that Bashar al-Assad, uh, a Shia Alawite leader of a minority uh, amount of the population in Syria, um, violently put down peaceful Sunni Arab protests several years ago, and this is then spiraled downward terribly into an all-out civil war that has many different factions and uh, enormous complexity. There are several extremist groups uh, among the Sunni Arab opposition to Bashar al-Assad's regime. There are Syrian Kurds that have now a degree of autonomy they never had before. There are other minorities that are all caught in the crossfire. Mm -hmm. uh, Iran is strongly backing Bashar al-Assad's regime. Uh, they've got their proxy from Lebanon, Lebanese Hezbollah now in the front lines, uh, stiffening Bashar's forces. Their Quds Force advisors are in there, and now even Russia s seems to be getting more involved. The, the problem is that Bashar al-Assad is the magnetic attraction for all of the Sunni Arab fighters, including among them, again, now extremist groups and a number of would-be jihadis from around the world. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to cooperate with Iran assuming that Bashar has to stay uh, their, their proxy figure right? Um, because that's a, a formula for unending civil war in that country. Um, certainly one of our greatest foes of the last century has been Russia, and uh, Iran seems to have in some part been collaborating with Russia recently. Um, flights of, of military supplies have been going over Iraq and Iran uh, into Syria to bolster Assad. Is that something we should be concerned about? Well, we should be. And it's interesting because Russia and before that Soviet interests have not always aligned with those of Iran, to put it mildly. In fact, the original reason for Central Command, what is now known as Central Command, was going to be to, to ensure that Iran was not invaded by the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. uh, as uh, its neighbor Afghanistan had been. 
but here there is a convergence. Uh, the Russians want to increase their presence in the Mediterranean, something they've, they've not had much of really uh, since the end of the Cold War and their departure from what used to be allies like uh, Egypt. And so they're trying to get a foothold, and they're in the northern city, uh, Bashar's stronghold on the coast, Latakia. Uh, and this adds to the complexity of the situation. Uh, there are Russian tanks, perhaps Russian aircraft going in that presumably are for self-defense of the Russian forces, uh, but who knows where that could lead uh, if they come under attack by some of the Sunni Arab elements that are fighting against Bashar and see this as a stronghold supporting Bashar's forces. Do you think the U.S. needs to change uh, its strategy with regard to Syria? With respect to Syria, absolutely. The problem in Syria all along has been that we have to have a viable Sunni Arab ground force to support. You can name the objective, any objective you have with respect to Syria, defeat of the Islamic State, defeat of the al-Qaeda affiliate Jabhat al-Nusra, defeat of the Khorasan group, sent there expressly to plan attacks uh, into Europe and the U.S., uh, defeat if we choose to of Bashar's forces or at least changing the battlefield momentum sufficiently so that you can get a context for the negotiation of a uh, diplomatic agreement mm -hmm. to resolve this situation. Again, whatever it is you want to accomplish in Syria, you name the objective. I will come back and say, okay, but we've got to have a viable Sunni Arab ground force to support. And by the way, we have to support that ground force against all enemies not just the one we want it to focus on, the Islamic State. Uh, so we're in a real dilemma here that will require some policy shift and certainly require more resources, not at all saying that we should put our ground forces in there. This has to be uh, Syrian Sunni Arabs for it to be sustainable in the long run. But the fact that this has taken so long to develop uh, means that some of our potential uh, ground force allies have gravitated to other elements that had more resourcing. Again, mm -hmm. Jabhat al-Nusra and uh, the Islamic State among them. So this is a very, very difficult problem given the extraordinary ramifications it's having, not just for the region, but again now most recently with the ex enormous number of refugees who are flooding into Europe and all the challenges that that poses for the countries of the European Union and for the UK. Well, General David Petraeus, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast today. We really appreciate it. It was my pleasure, Matt. Thanks. If you'd like to learn more about General Petraeus's research, you can read his report from earlier this year on the Belfer Center's website. It's called The Next Great Emerging Market, Capitalizing on North America's Four Interlocking Revolutions. We'll have a link in the show notes. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Photography by Tatiana Johnson. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Catherine Serafin at Harvard, as well as Ellen Clegg and Nicole Hernandez at the Boston Globe. And, of course, to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, at PolicyCast.